Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. 1 Samuel, the 26th chapter, and we begin our reading in verse 1. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul pitched in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. And David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. And David arose and came to the place where Saul had pitched, and David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host, and Saul lay in the trench, and the people pitched round about him. Then answered David and said to Abimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground in his bolster, but Abner and the people lay around about him. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. David said to Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, as his day shall come to die, or shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed, But I pray thee, take thou now the spear that is at his bolster and the cruise of water, let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster and got them away. No man saw it nor knew it, neither awaked, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill afar off, great space being between them. David cried to the people and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that criest to the king? And David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? Who is like unto thee in Israel? Wherefore then dost thou not, hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, thy lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because you have not kept your master the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord thus pursue after his servant? And what have I done? What evil is in mine hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord hath stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. 
The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be such set in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. There are many things that we do not know about Israel's first king, Saul. We really don't know much about his family life. We don't know much about his occupation prior to being anointed king, although we know he was at his father's disposal to look after the livestock when they'd wandered astray. We don't know what his favorite weapon was when he went to battle, but we do know this, Saul hated David. Twice he asked David to risk his life against the Philistines, hoping that David, rather than coming back a champion, would be found dead in the battle. Four times he assembled an army of at least 3,000 to hunt David and to kill him. Three times he threw javelins at David, and if he had been a better marksman, David would have been pinned to the wall. As we open our Bibles this evening to 1 Samuel 26, it's clear that David is doing graduate studies in the College of Animosity under the very capable tutelage of a king by the name of Saul. Now, David's relationship with King Saul is an intriguing relationship. After all, King Saul was for a time the father-in-law of David. David had played the harp in Saul's court and ministered to the king's spiritual needs. David knew well the temperament of Saul, how unpredictable he was, how maladjusted he was. David also knew that Saul was a man of disobedience. Partial obedience rather than full obedience to the command of God had cost Saul the throne and had promised that David would be his successor rather than Saul's son whom David loved, Jonathan. They had a very complex relationship. And as we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 26 this evening, the Spirit of God wants us to witness how David dealt with the obvious animosity that was between him and Saul. In 16 months, Saul would be dead. This is the last recorded encounter in the Bible between these two famous men of the Old Testament, David and Saul. And as we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 26, we discover something wonderful about David. David possessed a very valuable, a very elusive trait. David was able to let go of vengeance. He was able to let go of vengeance and actually love one who had become his enemy. David not only won a battle against Goliath, but David won his battle against the giant of animosity. I ask a question this evening as we open our Bible to this passage, this obscure passage in the Old Testament. Is there someone against whom you have long held a grudge? Is there someone who you would rather not sit by when brought into a gymnasium to have an evening service? Is there someone that you know who has caused your heart to be crippled with bitterness, 
and overwhelmed with a sourness even to think about their name, let alone the things that they have done to you. The passage before us this evening in 1 Samuel 26 presents six principles to help produce peace when we're provoked by very real enemies. How can I find peace when provoked by an enemy? Well, first let me suggest that you should discover your own failures. You'll never know peace with others. Enemies are acquaintances, family members, or those that you barely know. You will never really enjoy peace with others until you can first discover your own failures. What are you talking about, Pastor Phelps? Come back here to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and look what we read of in verse 42. Abigail, the widow now of Nabal, hasted and arose upon an ass with five damsels of hers that went after her. She went after the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were also both of them his wives. And Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Faltai, the son of Laish, which is of Galen. David was a polygamist. Take your Bibles and go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. The book of Deuteronomy had been written long before David lived, written by Moses. As we come to Deuteronomy chapter 17, even before Israel anointed a king, the rules with regard to those who would occupy the throne of Israel were provided beginning in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 40. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, or himself rather, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord hath said unto him, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this book of, out of that which is before the priests and Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of his law and these statutes to do them. David had already been anointed to be the king. He was the king in prospect. This fact was so well known that in the chapter before 1 Samuel 26, we discover Abigail expecting, for the word was out, among the people of Israel, that David would be the next to occupy the throne. Why then do we find David in 1 Samuel 25 multiplying wives when the law of God for the kings of Israel was that they not do so? Most of us when we sin have a fabulous ability to rationalize our sin. Perhaps David was saying, well, I'm not the king yet. Or, Depends on how a person defines multiplication. I mean, two, that's not really multiplication, right? That's just one plus one. It's not real multiplication. 
I must be okay. Folks, it's important for us to realize that God reveals the flaws in David's character as well as the strengths of his character. And it's good for us to apply this scripture this evening because when we are tempted to harbor an animosity toward others, the best way to begin the healing process so as not to fall prey to that which displeases the Lord is for us to discover our own failures. You see, when the heart is harboring animosity, it's time to look for the beams in our own eyes. And when we do, we always discover that they are there. You see, many enemies are forgotten when we consider our own sins. It just might be that God, in 1 Samuel 26, was using Saul as an instrument of warning or even judgment against David, who so openly is living in sin. Galatians chapter 6 says in verse 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And Hebrews 12 and verse 6 reminds us that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. The first thing you ought to do before harboring an animosity and stoking the fire upon it is to look into your own heart and ask the question, how's my relationship with the Lord? I almost shudder to tell this story. My father may be watching on live stream this evening and I could get in trouble tonight when I go to visit him. When I was a senior in high school, I borrowed my, my father's car and I totaled it. Not a good day. It was before cell phones. I slid off the road in West Virginia, took out a tree, and I could tell by looking at the car, that car wasn't going to go anywhere ever again. I went to a neighbor's house and I called my father and I said, hey dad, I've wrecked the car. He said, how bad is it? I said, well, it's not drivable. He said, you better get home right now. I have never run four miles any faster in my life than I ran that day. It was a Wednesday evening, and so our whole family had to be picked up to be brought to church because it was the only car we had. After church, we went out to the accident site, and suddenly my father, who had been very, very upset, got very, very quiet. I think he looked at the accident and realized that I was fortunate to be alive. Well, by the next day, the quietness had gone away. I begin to hear my dad say something like this. I've been driving for 30 years and I've never had an accident. I've been driving for 30 years and I've never had an accident. For 30 years I've been driving and I've never had an accident. Dad went out and bought a new car. He got it within that week. He pulled out onto the expressway in Clarksburg, West Virginia, our hometown. And as he pulled out on the expressway with that new car, he didn't hit the gas fast enough and someone slammed us in the back of that car. I was in the back seat with a smile on my face. <laughs> I realized I would never again hear. I've been driving for 30 years, and I've never had an accident. All of us can fall prey to this terrible mistake. When dealing with others, we fail to shine a mirror on our own hearts. We fail to realize that there but by the grace of God go I. Animosity toward others will never be removed until there's a humble spirit that realizes all of us have areas in our lives in which we are vulnerable to sin. David surely understood that. He was, after all, a polygamist with a problem 
with another man? How can we get by the animosity that raises its ugly head and causes us to be trapped because a relationship has been broken? Well, there's a second principle that leaps off the page in 1 Samuel 26, and that's this. All of us need to differentiate between hearsay and fact. All of us need to differentiate between hearsay and fact. I believe as we arrive in 1 Samuel 26, David is surprised to hear that Saul is actually chasing after him once again. After all, back in 1 Samuel 24, in the hills of Engadi, Saul had gone into a cave and David had seen him there in the cave. And you remember the story how David in the cave had crept close and cut off a part of the garment of Saul. How when Saul had left the cave, David stepped forward with that piece of the garment and said, Saul, I could have killed you. And in that moment, Saul realizing that David was the better man, for David was making his statement very publicly, Saul very humbly says, David, you are more righteous than I. David, I will no longer. Oh, there seems to be a promise in the caves of Engadi. But the promise is forgotten when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 26. And so I read these words. Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul pitched on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. David abode in the wilderness and saw that Saul came after him to the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. What's David doing? He's acting very wisely toward one who had been now for these years very publicly opposing David and showing anger toward David. He's checking the facts. He's sending out the spies. More than sending out the spies, soon we're going to see David himself in verse 5 rising up and coming to that place where Saul had pitched. David could not believe what his ears were hearing. He could not believe what he was seeing from afar off. He wanted to make very sure of the facts before he allowed himself to get stirred once again in this relationship, this complex relationship with King Saul. David understood some things that we need to understand. We need to understand that rumors are the enemies of peace. Rumors are the enemies of peace. Back in 1878, Randolph Hatfield accused Floyd McCoy of stealing a pig. You've perhaps heard the story. The world's most famous feud was on. It would last some 28 years, and by the time that the Hatfield and McCoy feud was over, 12 people had died. And you know what? No one ever did know whether a McCoy actually stole a Hatfield pig. Even to today, there are sides that are drawn up when the question comes up. Proverbs 26 says in verse 20, where no wood is, then the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceases. Be very careful when rumors cause your heart to stir. Rumors have an amazing way of driving peace from our relationships. That's why Proverbs says in chapter 25 and verse 23, the north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance the backbiting spirit. There's something all of us need to 
practice having an angry countenance when a rumor monger comes near. When you hear something that you know not to be substantiated in fact, your face ought to go into a furrow and drive away the rumors. David, in this passage, sets an example for us. He understands that impetuosity is the enemy of wisdom. Impetuosity is the enemy of wisdom. In verse 18, or chapter 18 and verse 13 of the book of Proverbs, the Bible says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame unto him. David very wisely in 1 Samuel 26 is making sure that he has all the facts before he does something very foolish with regard to Saul. There's a third rule to remember as we look in this text. If you would learn to love your enemies and defeat the giant of animosity, all of us need to discerningly listen to counsel. We need to discerningly listen to counsel. Beginning in verse 6, then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zariah, brother to Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul to the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with thee. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. Behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Then Abishai said to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand. I don't think he said it that loudly to you. Hey, God's delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now let me smite him, I pray thee, with a spear, even to the earth at once. I will not smite him a second time. I'm strong enough to get it done with one blow. This is the counsel that's ringing in the ears of David. Is it the counsel of peace? No, it's the counsel that inflames animosity. Listen, we live in an era that has elevated counsel beyond perhaps what any era has ever elevated. Counsel has long been appreciated. After all, the Bible tells us that when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, they stood all day before Moses to hear counsel of Moses with regard to the challenges they faced. In fact, Moses was so wearied with hearing people coming for counsel that Jethro, his father-in-law, said, you need to divide up this burden or it will absolutely consume you and the people. But folks, in the last 40 to 60 years, counsel has become a sacred word in the American culture. When tragedies are provoked, trauma counselors are invited in. When addictions are incurred, Addiction counselors are much needed. When deviancy is discovered, well then, we need counselors who can help a person understand good morality. And as counseling has slipped in and become the end-all for almost every societal problem, unfortunately, even within the church, some words have slipped out. Instead of saying about the cruel person who has abused his family, that man needs counsel, it used to be people would say that man needs to be saved. Instead of people saying with regard to the perpetrator of some form of deviancy, that man needs intense psychological counseling, it used to be said that man needs to get right with God. And folks, until we become discerning enough to realize that no man-given counselor can ever solve all the problems of the desperately wicked human heart. We'll never pray like we ought to. Only God can turn the heart of a man. 
Man looks on the outward appearance and even the most qualified counselor can be deceived in that counseling situation. God looks on the heart. Friends, we need to be careful with regard to the value given to human counsel. Had David listened to the human counsel that he was given in this situation, King Saul would have been dead. Abishai very clearly wanted to kill Saul. Abishai was offering David the counsel of pragmatism. He was not offering David the counsel of biblical principle. He saw the circumstances. Time to seize the moment, David. You can have his head right now. God must have delivered him to you. Sometimes when counsel comes from those who are too close to us, we grievously make bad judgment decisions and end up regretting what we've done. Some counsel comes from those who are too close. Abishai, who has crept into the camp of Saul with David, was after all the son of Zariah, David's sister. This then would be David's nephew. He's one of three famous brothers who throughout his life will demonstrate his loyalty to King David. But it was a familial loyalty. Abishai's loyalty to David was a family line loyalty. He was too close to give objective counsel to David in this moment. Sometimes counsel comes from those who honestly are just cruel. Abishai wanted to see Saul dead. In this moment, Saul is approaching his 80th year. He's been the king of Israel some 39 years. David has wisdom to know that God's time for Saul will surely come. Abishai decides now's the time. Deep in the heart of man's depravity dwells the monster of cruelty. And often it rears its ugly head in intimate moments. You better know how to plug your ears. Even James and John would come to Jesus in Luke chapter 9 and say, Hey, can we call down fire from heaven? The sons of thunder thought that would be the right thing for these who were rejecting Christ as Messiah. I remember many years ago being called out from the home very late in the evening. The phone rang in our home, maybe 1130, maybe midnight. I was a youth pastor. The senior pastor was out of town, and I was called into a family crisis and I was very likely not prepared for it. The husband had been unfaithful to his wife. She was livid. Walking into that home was like walking into a tornado. I prayed with them, gave some measure of suggestions to them and encouraged them to see the senior pastor as soon as he was back. But between that moment of counsel and the time that they would see the senior pastor, the woman who had been wronged spoke to her family members. They had a solution for it. Don't you ever go home to that man again. And that marriage was terminated within a day. No, there wasn't a divorce decree, but there might well have been. The young lady involved could find no forgiveness in her heart. After all, the counsel she was receiving was pragmatic counsel given by those who were close at hand. And those who no doubt were very grieved and wanted some cruelty of, of vengeance to come back. Be careful. Be careful. Remember those who are closest to you may be furthest from your enemies. All of us have a way of assembling with those who tend to agree with us. 
And those who are outside of our intimate zone may have different points of view than those who are close at hand. Discerningly listen to counsel if you would fight against the giant of animosity. And a fourth rule to remember from this passage is this, decide to give your trouble to God. Decide to give your trouble to God. As we read, beginning in verse 10, David said furthermore to Abishai, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed, but I pray thee, take now the spear that is in his bolster and the cruise of water, and let us go. It would have been easy for David to take the life of Saul, but David chose not to avenge himself, trusting in God to be the God of vengeance. Romans 12 and verse 19 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And there's some things we always need to keep in mind when we're dealing with a situation that's ever so tense. First, God knows our troubles. God knows our troubles. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And more than just knowing our troubles, we're reminded by Peter that he cares. We cast all our care upon him for he cares for us. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Psalms, the seventh Psalm. Psalm seven, the seventh Psalm, putting a mark in 1 Samuel 26. Come with me to Psalm seven. Psalm seven is often called the song of the slandered saint. The song of the slandered saint. It's amazing when you read the Psalms to to discover how often the theme of the cruelty of words and lies and slanders is developed. I find that intriguing, honestly. It wouldn't seem to be my first choice to sing a hymn about someone slandering me or lying about me. But the hymn book of Israel is filled with such songs and this is a very interesting song. Look at the ascription before the Psalm begins. Sigeon, it means thoughts, even scrambled thoughts of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush. The word Cush means black. Some actually believe that Cush is a nickname for King Saul. I'm not sure of that, but I'm sure of this. It was concerning the words of one who was a Benjamite. That was Saul's tribe. So it's very likely that first, or, or Psalm 7, rather, was written by David when he was on the run in Engadi and in the wilderness because Saul was after him. So let's listen to the emotions of David in those moments and how David was able to find victory over the giant of animosity. O Lord my God, in thee I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Do you see the place that we're reading in 1 Samuel 26 in the fourth verse of Psalm 7? Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it if I'm guilty, David is saying. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. 
Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to mine integrity that's in me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and the reins. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Where did David go? David brought his burden to the Lord, and you should too. Come back to 1 Samuel 26. We discover two more principles that bring peace when we fight against the giant of animosity. I discover beginning in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 26 that there needs to be a dialogue that respects boundaries. David took the spear and the cruise of water from Saul's bolster, and they got them away, and no man saw it nor knew it, neither awakened, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill, afar off, a great space being between them. David cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner. We see the same thing in Engadi. David knows that words need to be exchanged. David knows that communication must happen. David knows that he has to have a conversation with Saul. But he's very careful about that conversation. When you find yourself in the midst of a challenging time with someone who's become a giant of defiance or of animosity. Be careful. Conversation is necessary. Reconciliation between two parties requires that words be exchanged. But the setting for those words needs to be very carefully considered because dialogue can bring danger. Dialogue can bring danger. Proverbs says it this way in Proverbs 10 and verse 19, In the multitude of words there wants not sin. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. How then should I speak to that one who has become to me a thorn in the flesh and a burden to my soul? Come over with me to Ephesians chapter 4 quickly this evening. And let's be reminded that Ephesians chapter 4, there are some rules for every Christian in every conversation. I would strongly encourage you, if you have not already done so, to memorize Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25 to the end of the chapter. This passage is a powerful paragraph that gives guidance to all those who would have profitable conversations when tensions arise and even enter into profitable conversations so that tensions never arise. These are rules for Christian communication. Beginning in verse 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. Let's state this rule this way, be honest. Every one of these rules runs along the same logical pattern in these verses. We're told what to put off, we're told what to put on, and we're told why. After all, we are to be putting on the new man, verse 24 says. So putting away lying... We are to speak every man truth with his neighbor, replacing lying with truth. Why? We're members one of another. And just as a body is at risk if there's neuropathy in the hand or the foot, and the nerves do not communicate with the brain so that 
danger can be averted. Even so, in our communication, where honesty is gone, there's no quality communication. And whether it be cover up intentionally or accidentally, when there's no transparency and no honesty, the body is at risk. So rule number one, be honest. Verse 26, be angry and sin not. That's some people's life verse. Be angry, it says. But it says, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Two different words. Something to put away, something to put on, and the reason why. Don't give place to the devil. What's he saying here? He's saying, keep short accounts or keep current. Keep current. Stay current with your life situations. You'll forget the details otherwise. And if you have exploded in your anger, in your anger, don't let the sun go down on that. If you do, you'll give place to the devil. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that he may have to give to the one that needs. You say, well, how does that have anything to do with communication? Here's the rule. Be industrious. Be industrious. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands. Do you ever work with someone who doesn't pull his weight? Has that ever bothered you when you're on a job site or perhaps even working at home and somebody's just lallygagging around and not doing what they ought to do and you think, I'm doing it all. Let me ask you, how do you like to talk to that person? You want to have lunch with that person? Want to hang out with that person? Communication is very difficult when people are not industrious. This verse steps on my toes a lot. I try to remind myself often that if I'm going to have the right relationship that I want to have in my home, I need to stay busy. I need to be industrious and pull my own weight. Attack the problem, not the person. That's verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Attack the problem, not the person. And finally, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Act, don't react. God has given us a roadmap. It's a roadmap for correct Christian communication. David, in his battle with the giant of animosity that we discover in 1 Samuel 26, is wise enough not to go up to King Saul and push him on the shoulder and go, Yoo-hoo, hey Saul. Wake up, let's have a little talk. Can we sit over here by the fire? <laughs> no, the rules of engagement have been very carefully drawn up. And even so, when you're going through a battle with someone that's causing animosity, you need to be careful about the rules of engagement. Dialogue, but respect the boundaries. And finally, devote yourself to the work of God. Devote yourself to the work of God. Saul knew David's voice, verse 17. Is this thy voice, my son David? David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. He said, wherefore doth my lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred thee against me, if it's true that I've done something that has caused you to be agitated, then David says, I would pray that you would allow me to give an offering for this my sin. But if they be the children of men, cursed be they before the Lord. In other words, if a rumor has begun this 
confrontation and caused you to leave your place of ease and bring your army after me again, David says, let those who have caused this rumor be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of my Lord. They have actually conducted themselves toward me, pushing me away from the sanctuary, pushing me away from the tabernacle. By their actions and activities, they have said, this is David's testimony, they've said, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. And David answered, here's your spear, and here's your cruise of water. And behold, verse 24, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set in the eyes of the Lord. Let him deliver me out of all my tribulations. David places himself in the work of God. What's his greatest concern? Listen. His greatest concern in the moment of this revealing conversation with a king who wants his life. What's the thing that's most important to him in this moment? What does he want to express to to Saul as this peace is now going to be encountered? He wants to express this. I don't want this moment, a division between you and I, to cause the work of God to not go forth in power. I want to submit myself to the work of God. I'd love to bring an offering to the tabernacle, but I've been pushed away by those who would rather see me serving other gods. Please, it seems David to be saying, please. Respect the fact that God's work in our lives is the priority for all who are witnessing this dreadful circumstance of animosity. Good news in this passage The good news is this, David not only defeated the giant called Goliath, but David wins the battle against the giant of animosity. And more than that, in chapter 24 and 25 and 26, David is being tested with regard to how he will deal with the giants of authority in his life. Before God establishes David's authority, David has to be tried with regard to how he respects authority, whether it be Saul or Nabal. And what does he teach us? If we would avoid the giant of animosity, we need to discover our own failures. We need to differentiate between hearsay and fact. We need to discerningly listen to counsel. We need to decide to give our troubles to God. We need to dialogue but respect the boundaries. We need to devote ourselves to the work of God. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.